Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. You think I don't feel guilty for that? I think you think I don't? I do. Okay, and you're making shit worse. This week, we travel to the west side of the city of Cleveland in 2018. So this is the west side of Cleveland. This is Rachel Polanski. She's an investigative reporter for Three News in Cleveland, Ohio. The city of Cleveland, uh, there's downtown Cleveland, and then you have the east side and you have the west side. So this is the Detroit Shoreway uh, neighborhood. This is on the west side of Cleveland. It's here that five-year-old Jordan Rodriguez and his large family of many brothers and sisters live. Jordan was a sweet little boy. He was five years old, adorable, big brown eyes, um... He also had developmental disabilities, and he was unable to speak. His mother is 34-year-old Larissa Rodriguez. She and her nine children, including five-year-old Jordan, live in a tree-lined neighborhood in a mid-century home with a large backyard. The family also lives with Larissa's boyfriend, Christopher Rodriguez. But things are not well in the household. The house is often checked up on by social services, And in late 2018, police are dispatched on a welfare check for little Jordan. This is audio from police body cam footage from that welfare check. And mind you, it's a little hard to understand. Are are your kids here? You mind if you step in? Okay. You have one on a four or five year old. How old is this? Four? Okay. Is it a boy? At first, Larissa makes no mention of Jordan, instead referring to her four-year-old Anthony. A girl? What? A little boy. A oh, boy. What's the boy's name? Anthony. Okay. Um, let's see if you can get a name. Is there anything? Well, we got a call say, uh, want us to check on the, on the uh, well-being of the uh, five-year-old, four- to five-year-old. How many kids are good? Okay, what can we see? Okay, I believe you. Don't worry, man. <laughs> the officers follow Larissa up a flight of creaking stairs to the bedrooms. Larissa stands in the hallway with one of the officers, while the other peeks in the two bedrooms. Okay. My oldest one, she's right there. Let me know. All right. Hello, kids. <laughs> All right. All right. As they head down the stairs, the officer asks Larissa for her ID, which she retrieves and hands over to the officer. Do you have a child with special needs? Oh, Jordan? Yes, I do. How old is Jordan? Jordan, he is just turned five. Where's Jordan at? He's with his dad. He's visiting, going to be visiting for the holiday. He's not here with us right now, right now. 
for the holiday. Where's dad at? In Texas. He's not even here. Is that who you guys are pertaining to? Um, maybe possibly. What was the call mainly about? Just checking the welfare. The officer then asks her for Jordan's father's contact info and to write down where all of the remaining three kids are located and their date of birth, which she writes down on a piece of paper. Man, I would really love to get in touch with Jordan. Okay. okay. Is there any way I can give you when I find the number to contact? Um, who, who? I got two. Any of the kids disabled? Uh, he's not really disabled, but that's the one that's with his dad. No? No. Oh, what do you mean? He's just SSI. He don't he can't talk. How old is he? He's he just turned five. Okay. That's the worst. They ask her for a phone number and the address of where Jordan is staying in Texas. Larissa says she will look for it and get back to them at a later time. But you can get it now, it's not a big deal. We'll wait. How long has he been in Texas? He's been all, only over there for a couple weeks. Because he goes over there to, you know, visit and stuff like that. Wait a minute, he goes where to? Huh? No, no. He goes? Yeah. I want to say sperm donor. He goes to Texas to visit? Yeah. He's been, he goes there, he went there last year, went there this year. Because uh, he just goes to visit family out there. But, I mean, other than that, he's here. So, so Jordan has... He has family members in Texas. Yes, yes. All right. Do you know any numbers or any how to get in touch with anybody who actually lives in Texas? I mean, right now, his phone just got disconnected. What's his I'm waiting for him to call me. What's his address? I don't you know. You just didn't send the kid to who knows who, right? I mean, no. I mean, I don't know the address personally because me and his dad don't really associate like that. But you let him go with it, right? Right. He just had his phone disconnected. He's going to be calling me with the phone number. At this point, one of the officers walks out of the house and begins looking around the yard. He doesn't find anything, but because Larissa is not able to definitively give any details to where Jordan is or any contact info for who he is with, police call child services and arrest her. And here is why. That day, police had received a phone call from the brother of Larissa's boyfriend, Christopher. This brother lives in Pakistan, and says that Chris called him to confess a gruesome crime. Our caller is in Pakistan calling right now. He received this information third party. Says his brother and his girlfriend buried their four five-year-old son in the backyard and found the child unresponsive this morning. So he told police that Christopher had called him from jail and told him that both Christopher and Larissa had buried Jordan in the backyard about three months earlier after they found him unresponsive. Um, Investigators come out to Larissa's home. Police search the house, they search the backyard, but they don't find anything. So Larissa's taken into custody and police return the next day. Um, This time they return with a warrant and uh, they start digging in the backyard of this home and that's when they find the human remains that are consistent with those of a young child, and uh, they're found to be buried. Investigators find Jordan's body buried in an unmarked grave in the backyard. So this is some of the worst part of the story, in my opinion. Jordan's body was wrapped in bags of mothballs to keep rodents away, with a pull-up diaper that was pulled over his head 
and he was lying in a four foot by four foot hole. Um, so they buried him in this unmarked grave um, in these clearly conditions that they thought about, um, you know, how to keep rodents away, for example. Uh, just, just saying it aloud, you know, it gives me the goosebumps. Now both in custody, police begin asking Larissa what happened. She says Jordan got sick, and she and Chris just didn't know what to do when he died from his illness. So she claims that Jordan suddenly fell ill. His arms got skinnier, his stomach got bigger. He even lost his hair. She says that she tried to help him, but he never got better. Um, and, and she says that he passed away. Um, when detectives confronted her on why didn't you take him to the hospital, she said, I was scared that I was going to have all of my kids taken from me. I was scared, but I loved him. Um, so clearly she knew, you know, the kids weren't in a good situation. Family services had been called on them multiple times. Um, so her side of the story is that she wanted to take him to the hospital, but she was scared that if she did, that uh, the Department of Children and Family Services would take all of her children away from her. I was scared. Of what? That I was just going to have all of them took him from me. But I still love them. He's my kid. As investigators begin to probe at certain aspects of her story, things just don't add up for them. So I think this is a great example of, you know, police at work in these interrogation rooms and how they're able to get people talking. Um, she has some outbursts. She has some, um, there, there's some moments where she's screaming, where she's crying. Um, and again, this is really the first time that she ever spoke about this. I was sitting with Jordan. Mm -hmm. It was like Jordan gave me his last words. It was Christopher's idea to, to, to bury your son in the backyard? It was my idea, and he just did it. Just because I didn't want Jordan to be far away from me, I just wanted him to be close. I was not ready to let Jordan go. So in this part of the interrogation, she is very upset. She's crying, you know, distraught mother. Um, later in the interview, when they start asking questions about the abuse of Jordan, she changes that persona. She gets angry. Um, you know, she's defensive that she loved Jordan. She didn't hurt him. I think you think I don't? I do. Okay, sure. and you're making it worse. I'll oh, yeah, never touch did. my son. Oh, yeah. But she admits that yes, Christopher did abuse him. Um, and when detectives, you know, press her on that, she she does say yes a few times. I've seen him abuse him. Did he actually? physically abuse him that you've seen? A few times that I've seen, yes. But then she goes on to defend herself and say, I never touched my son. So in, in you know, in that round of interviews, she's playing the uh, protective mama bear, I guess you might say. So her personality kind of changes throughout these, throughout these interviews. Um, but, you know, it's, it's definitely a whole range of emotions. Uh, and there's definitely a lot of outbursts. Um, you know, screaming, crying, the, the whole gamut of, of emotions. The autopsy report confirms the investigator's theory that this case is much more brutal than what Chris and Larissa are telling them. Though it was never said exactly how Jordan died, an autopsy revealed fractures on both his ribs and his wrist, which were found to be consistent with child abuse. Larissa and Chris are charged and their separate trials begin. 
prosecutors use social worker case files to corroborate their theory of what happened to Jordan. Social workers said in court documents that the home was in deplorable and unsanitary conditions. It was also infested with rats and even cockroaches. One social worker said that she actually found one child eating a cockroach-filled sandwich when she arrived at the house. Um, so it's really, really a tough situation here. As more of the case is revealed, more questions arise, in particular with social services' failure to step in after several complaints from friends and family. The Department of Children and Family Services has often been blamed in this case as well for not doing more. Um, this wasn't the first time that, you know, something had happened with Larissa. The Department of Children and Family Services had been called out to that house several times. And uh, a sister of Larissa Rodriguez, uh, the child's, Jordan's aunt, Anna Rodriguez, she had said that uh, she had called Family Services several times herself. Um, in one case, she talked about seeing little Jordan tied up in a corner with a sock stuck in his mouth. Um, so, so she blamed Children and Family Services for not stepping in sooner or following up on these tips about these conditions in which these children were living, you know, well before Jordan's body was discovered. In fact, on top of Larissa being charged in connection with Jordan's death, she's also charged along with her social worker for fraud. Larissa Rodriguez also pleaded guilty to food stamp fraud. So what she was doing from 2015 through 2017, she was working with a caseworker. Um, this caseworker was paying her 50 cents for every $1 of food stamp benefits. Um, so this woman was supposed to be conducting monthly home visits to check on the children and check on the living conditions and file a report each time. Investigators found that on at least 12 occasions, she simply showed up to the house, picked up the food stamp card, and filed false reports that were claiming that she had inspected the house when she hadn't. So that's at least 12 times that she could have stepped in, she could have reported these conditions, and maybe, you know, they could have got Jordan out of this house before, before he died. Larissa and Christopher take a plea deal in order to avoid life in prison. They were both encouraged to take a plea deal to avoid trial for murder, which of course could carry a life sentence. Um, so the couple pleaded guilty to all of the charges against them that included involuntary manslaughter, um, and that would avoid the murder charges. So Larissa was sentenced to 25 years in prison, Christopher 28 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, so their charges included involuntary manslaughter, felonious assault, child endangering, and of course, gross abuse of a corpse um, in Jordan's death. Uh, so this, this was a plea deal with the prosecutors and it allowed the couple to avoid a trial for murder, which could have carried a life sentence. In the courtroom, uh, Larissa was pretty stone-faced, um, didn't show much emotion, um, didn't really say anything. But the judge, the judge spoke out, and this was pretty powerful. I know as a judge I'm not supposed to show emotion. And in 22 years, I never have. This is one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. In the courtroom, you rarely see the judge fighting back tears, you know, and, and being, um, you know, just show these really human emotions. 
so I thought that was kind of interesting and almost a little bit poetic in that Larissa, stone-faced, emotionless, and then the judge is the one that, you know, is fighting back tears. You just don't see that very often in the courtroom. All of Larissa's children were taken by family services. Larissa gave birth to her 10th child while she was in jail awaiting her court date. And that child was placed in the custody of the city as well. For Rachel, this case is one of the few that really got under her skin. And the details of it stick with her to this day. This case struck a lot of nerves for the community and law enforcement. You know, I think it was just so hard to believe that a child could be treated in such a manner. And, you know, to me, it felt like the parents failed Jordan, but it also felt like the city of Cleveland failed Jordan. This could have been prevented. You know, family services had been called. Uh, there was just so many failures in this case, of course, by the parents, but then also by the city and by the county. And as a reporter, you know, we cover a lot of stories. This is one of those stories that stick with you, you know, just the nature of it. Of course, anytime a child is killed, that sticks with you. But this case was even more so, you know, the way they buried Jordan. Um, it's just so tragic. And uh, it just struck a lot of nerves for me and I, and I think for the entire community. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson. I'm here with Reed Redmond and Spencer Brudig. Spencer, clearly one of the tougher stories I think we've done since we started this show. It's almost like we needed a, an additional disclaimer just to let listeners know, you know, how horrid this is. It is a truly tragic story. I mean, and it, it just, it permeates the entire, the entire story from Rachel telling it to you as a listener hearing about it to, uh, to the judge, right? It's just really, really sad. Yeah. You, I mean, you mentioned the judge and clearly play that audio in the, in the episode. Listening to that is like, just as Rachel says, I don't think I've ever heard, you know, I haven't seen the video, but heard a judge in a courtroom reacting like that. You you hear from time to time judges being rather stern or emotional, but that was blew me away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her words speak for itself, right? It was one of the worst things she's ever seen. It's it's uh yeah, it's tragic. It really is. Well, Spencer, you and Rachel talked a little bit about this as not just a personal failure, but a failure of the system of child protective services to do what they're supposed to do and protect this child. And tragically, I understand there have been a handful of other cases not too different from this one in the Cleveland area in Cuyahoga County, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there are actually protests that uh, have demanded probes of Cuyahoga County's children and family services. So um, there have definitely been other cases that this has come up as kind of a, a system failure. And, and Spencer, just to make sure, there was never a cause of death. I mean, you mentioned injuries on the body of this child, but th there was never confirmation what exactly happened. Right. There was no cause of death, although it was ruled a homicide. 
just with no cause of death. The autopsy report came back saying that Jordan had broken wrists, broken ribs, and it was very clear that he had died from some sort of major trauma. Do we have any indication as to how long Jordan had been missing when he might have actually died? There were definitely several months that passed. Uh, Jordan was last seen on the 21st, and investigators believe that he was actually killed on the 22nd. There were months between his death and when his body was recovered. Spencer, another aspect of this, which is clear, but I think needs to be mentioned is that now you have a family of young children, I think for the most part, pretty young, right? Who are now, you know, their mom is behind bars, her boyfriend is behind bars. They've they've obviously had to go to another home or elsewhere, right? According to Rachel's reporting, several of the children are with other family members and the remainder of the kids are within state custody um, for state child protective services. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, nine other kids that grow up without their brother, grow up without their um, their mother. All right, Spencer, thanks for bringing us the story this week. And thanks to Rachel Polanski at WKYC in Cleveland also. Uh, we will be back next week with another story. Spencer, in the meantime, people can talk about this case or other cases we've covered on Facebook. Yes, our group Inside the Crime Vault just uh, surpassed 5,500 members. So we would love to see you on that Facebook page in that group discussing this case and other cases like it. All right, and uh, Reed and I are hosting a brand new daily show. It's not so brand new anymore, but a few weeks old. Check it out Monday through Friday, a new case every day, actually. So uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find The Daily Crime. We will be back next week with a new case and a new story.